So in September of 1837, a question came before the U.S. House of Representatives for consideration. And the question concerned the House's own rules for operation, specifically whether it was appropriate for the men who served in the U.S. Congress to wear things on their heads while they were on the House floor. Now you have to remember this was a time when hats were a part of everyday fashion. I have a picture of hats of the era, all these kinds of hats men liked to wear. And there was a custom of wearing the hat while governing that actually had roots in the British Parliament, where many of members of the Chamber of Parliament there would wear hats to make a political statement. To wear a hat in Parliament was thought to subtly communicate that you were independent from the crown. Make sense? So while the United States had a president, not a monarch, some people believed that this form of protest towards executive overreach in Congress was still important. But there was this other historic current, an increasing cultural desire to clean up the presentation of gentility and respectability in public life. You see, at the time, not only were congresspersons wearing their hats inside while governing, but they were also chewing tobacco and spitting it out. They all had spittoons at their desks. They were smoking cigars, drinking liquor. There were actually like 12 dispensaries of liquor on the Capitol at the time. Um, and they were unfurling their newspapers on their desks so they could prop their feet up during debate. And for those who believed that this kind of saloon-like behavior was beneath the United States Congress, removing the hats from governing was the first point of attack. Okay, so it took 15 years of debate through various attempts at rule changes. But in 1837, the new rule was adopted. And the rule read this, such, I have it up here. Every member shall remain uncovered during the sessions of the House. And for nearly two centuries, the rule has remained unchallenged. Congresspersons have entered the chamber uncovered, as they say. But a few weeks ago, Minnesota's 5th Congressional District elected to send Ilan Omar to Washington to represent them. And Ms. Omar is one of the first two Muslim women elevated to Congress this election season. And when she serves, she will be the first to wear hijab, which is a headscarf worn by some Muslim women as part of their observance of faith. And you see a quote here, because despite what some folks who are mistaken about Islam forcing women to cover against their will, Ms. Omar says this, no one puts a scarf on my head but me. It's my choice, one protected by the First Amendment. But as it stands, Ms. Omar is not actually able to serve in her role of governing with her hijab. And so as she prepares for her new job as a U.S. Congressperson, Ms. Omar is leading a campaign to change this rule, allowing exceptions to the ban on headwear for religious or for potentially medical reasons. Now, I don't think this rule in 1837 was meant to bar people like Miss Omar from serving in Congress. The truth is, when the ban on headwear was adopted by a group of exclusively white men who wore hats and sometimes wigs to cover their hair loss, the men who voted on the rule likely had no imagination that a Somali-born Muslim woman would ever serve in the US Congress. But as long as it remains, this rule in its very mundane bureaucratic existence serves as a structural barrier to entry, 
right? It says to women, like Ilan Omar, that they're not welcome. That despite their achievements, their political success, their unique contextual embodiment of what our culture describes as the American dream, that they don't belong. Well, this is the fifth and final teaching for now in the series I'm calling Reconstructing Faith, where we've been looking at deconstructing, taking apart some of our systems of meaning and considering how we might rebuild them in different ways. And today's teaching I'm calling Faith in the Company of Others. Now, many of us have had powerful experiences with the divine at some point, and I think often those have been connected to spiritual community. We may have found faith in real ways in the midst of others, but over time, perhaps like Ilan Omar, some of us have also had experiences in community that left us wondering if the group we were a part of could ever allow us to fully belong. So each Sunday in this series, we've been hearing from someone in our community about something they've been deconstructing and reconstructing in regards to Jesus-centered faith. And today we have the pleasure of hearing from our friend Kim DeWitt. So I'm going to welcome her up to share. Hello, my name is Kim. I work in early childhood education. I grew up on the North Shore of Oahu, came to the mainland to go to college, and then stayed here in the Bay Area. Thank you for allowing me to share. I come with questions, confusion, and heartbreak about navigating differences with people, other people of faith. I feel hurt, frustrated, and mad toward Christians who use destruction, despair, and alienation toward the LGBTQ plus community, women, and people of color. Waiting on the front steps for my mom to pick us up for an overnight visit on the weekend. I was six, and my sister was four and a half. We would wake up early on Saturday morning. We were so excited to get time with my mom. We would pack up our little suitcase, and then we would wait till 10 a.m., the time my mom said she was coming, and sit on the front porch steps to wait for my mom to come. My parents divorced when I was five. My dad won custody of us, but he was struggling with alcoholism and gambling. So my dad's parents took us in, but my grandmother was bitter and resentful and did not want to raise young children again. While we waited and waited on the steps for my mother to arrive, my grandmother would criticize and belittle our mom until she arrived. Meanwhile, as the hours dragged on, I would not leave the front steps because I kept hoping my mom would come. Throughout my childhood, my grandmother scapegoated my little sister and treated her unfairly, punished her, and blamed my sister for our dad's alcoholism and his debts. I tried to protect my sister and take the blame and cover for her, but I was a child also wanting someone to protect and take care of me. Before my dad lost his bar to gambling and alcoholism, he took us there during our time with him. Oftentimes it was late in the night and at closing time, and the locals and the mainland military would fight, or there was a robbery, or the police were called to break up a fight, and my sister and I would feel afraid. A kind bartender would push us under her mumu, um, it's like this long Hawaiian dress, so that we could not see the fight, and at moments like these, I knew that Jesus was with me, and he knew where I was, and I could pray and talk with Jesus when my family was not there for me. I found my faith and a family in the little Christian missionary school that my grandparents sent us to attend. My grandparents did not go to church, but they chose a tr Christian school because it was the closest school, and it had a school bus, so I did not need to drive us to and from school. 
at this school I learned in this little church that Jesus is with me, hears me, and sees me. This meant I could cry out and talk and pray with Jesus when I felt afraid at any time and from any location. From my dad's bar during a fight, from my mom's when I felt invisible with my grandparents. In my college years, I wanted to learn more about God and faith, and I found family and community with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. After graduation, I moved with InterVarsity friends to work and to go to church together for the next decade in San Francisco. In San Francisco, we went to the New Life Vineyard, and then we, there was a church, vineyard church plant on the peninsula, and then a second vineyard church plant. So my husband John and I found extended family in our vineyard church community for the last 26 years. We brought our children, Catherine and Josh, to our church community, and we raised them up within this church community. But when our daughter struggled with coming out as gay and how she accurately perceived how many in the church community would respond, I experienced how threatening, damaging, soul-crushing, and destructive the beliefs and implications of exclusive doctrines are. I share my backstory because Jesus, family, church, and university are all intertwined. My daughter understood deeply the importance of these church commitments and communities to me and John and how the worth of believing in Jesus was so important to our family. Our daughter perceived the tension and pain in coming out in our church context. It is so tragic to me that the message of rejection, judgment, and invalidation came through the, our church people and that despair, loss of hope, and self-destruction seemed like the answer. In my longing for connection with church community, I almost lost my daughter. My heart aches, and I feel frustrated, betrayed, and confused. I thought I could trust my church community and university, but individuals within these communities and institutions are not affirming, and their interpretations, words, and actions bring harm and destruction to the LGBTQ community, and that is to my family and my friends. So I'm not sure how to deal with the tensions of navigating differences with other people of faith. Do I relate with the same openness and vulnerability as I have in the past? Do I try to debate and help them understand how their beliefs cause despair, destruction, and alienation? Do I stay quiet and clench my teeth and feel the stress inside my stomach grow? I do know that the God who sees me and sees all people is a God who stands with the oppressed and the marginalized. I want to be in community on Jesus' side. I cannot condone destruction and violence against anyone. I do know that I stand, advocate, and fight for all to be included, protected, seen, and valued. Thank you. Thank you, Kim, for sharing so vulnerably. We hold your story. Thank you for allowing us to. I'm guessing some of you might resonate in some way with Kim's story. You can at least imagine if it's not your story. I that would be hard. And the hard parts of her story might leave some of us feeling like, you know, why bother? Why bother with community? I mean, Jesus might be helpful and powerful. But if organized religion is so problematic, isn't the answer just to, like, do away with that part? And yet going it alone is challenging. And in some ways, I'd argue, antithetical to the point. 
Jesus-centered faith is ultimately about coming into relationship with God and others. It's a theme that is woven throughout the whole canon of Scripture. Humanity begins with the divine, concluding that it is not good for the humans to be alone, even alone with God. The end of the picture is a diverse collective with people from every culture, every language, every ethnic group, united in celebration around the divine. And then there's the whole way the story is communicated, right? Remember from our teaching on the Bible, God is experienced not through human texts, but through human relationships, right? Jesus came not to write a book or create like a killer podcast you could just take in at your own pace. No. Jesus came to cultivate communities of belonging in which the divine could be present and could work from to renew the world. In recent months, I've been reminded anew, even just this week, how important it is to have a rich network of connection through which to experience the divine. As most of you know, my sister has recently been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and embarking on the new journey of this illness with her has reminded me afresh how vital, how vital it is to have a network of people in our corner who can show up for us when we really need them and that they reflect divinity to us. I was honored that last Saturday I actually got to be there in Escondido and see this diverse network my sister has, reflecting back the face of God, though none of them may have used that language, to her. Reminding her and I afresh that going it alone, it's not really a long-term spiritually nourishing option. Just not. So how are we to think about it? And I'll be honest, I'm not gonna answer all the questions that are on Kim's heart I hope that maybe we can do that more together in the season to come. But as I've been pondering this the last couple of weeks, there's just one story from the life of Jesus that keeps coming to me and giving me food for thought. And so as I've been studying it, I think it's because this story shows very clearly some of the real challenges that communities have as they set up systems and structures of belonging and how Jesus seems to interact with that reality. So we're going to look at this story, and I hope it, it at least opens the conversation for us as we think about it in our community. So we're going to start with John 9, beginning with verse 1. And if you want to read along, you have it on your sheets there. As he, meaning Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it in the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word meant scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. 
his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. But he himself insisted, oh, others said, no, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So we'll stop there for a bit. The story starts with a question from the disciples. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And this question reveals a common presumption of Jesus' day that disability had to be the effect of sin. Okay, the problem is there's like a circular logic around this. In Jewish religious life, those with physical differences were often not allowed to fully participate in religious life on account of those differences. And participation in religious life, meaning attending synagogue, going to the temple to make your sacrifices, being a part of the festivals, all of that was the way the community understood that people were made good before God. So because the person in question was seen to be living in some way separated from what it meant to be devotedly following God, people started to just assume that the cause of the condition was some sort of ungodliness, okay? It's this, that's the, where this question, who sinned, comes from. For the person to be unworthy of faith participation, he or his parents must have been morally unfit, is the logic. And this is a phenomenon we still seem to see today. It's called blaming the victim. You understand how it goes, right? It's all too common. If that woman didn't want to be sexually assaulted, she should not have worn that outfit. If that young black boy didn't want to get shot, he should have listened to the officer's instructions. If that man wanted to see, he or his parents shouldn't have lived so sinfully. Social psychologists call this phenomenon of victim blaming an attribution error. People attribute outcomes to some assumed internal personal characteristics while ignoring external forces and variables that also may have played a role. So in our story, no one's asking the question, what does it mean that we are part of a system that relegates a man without eyesight to second-class status, that excludes him from full participation in our group? They're simply asking, who can we blame for this man's impediment, him or his parents? But Jesus sees the flaw in their logic. Neither this man or his parents sinned, he said. You're missing it. Your whole framework for understanding this is wrong. But he doesn't stop there, just making a point, using this man as an object lesson. He goes a step further, identifying this encounter as an opportunity to do the work of the divine. And with that, he spits on the ground, and he rubs clay in the man's eyes, and then he tells him to go and wash. Now, these acts are about more than simply curing the man's lack of sight, although that's a miracle. But this action is also confronting the wrong that's been done to this man through exclusion. Jesus doesn't open the guy's eyes instantaneously. He doesn't allow his face to be the first face this man is going to behold. If just the man coming to personal faith in Jesus Christ was the point, maybe he would have done that. 
But something more seems to be going on. Instead of instantaneously healing him, Jesus sends him to the pool of Siloam. Now, for Jews to bathe in this pool was an act of solidarity with the Jewish community. Scholars believe this pool was probably a mikvah. Okay, mikvahs were pools used for ritual purification. One bathed in them before participating in religious life. A woman after menstruation bathed in the mikvah to return to the community. A convert to the faith bathed in the mikvah to be initiated. Jesus sends this man there. Jesus isn't content to see his religious community try to create a moral logic around exclusion. He comes to subvert the logic. The man is invited to bathe in the pool, and in this holistically healing experience of inclusion in the community of faith, his physical impediment, which was once seen as both the cause and proof for a moral impediment, was removed. But the community doesn't embrace the man immediately. Like the disciples of Jesus, those around him see him as an object to be considered not a human to be pursued with his own story, right? They speak about him in the third person. You notice that? As though he wasn't even there. Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. No one even asks him. You see, this encounter is about much more than sight. Granted, it's about confronting the perceptions of a community subverting the rules of victim-blaming and exclusion and empowering the voice of the silenced and otherized. This man finds his voice. He doesn't let himself continue to be an object for others' agendas. He enters the conversation for the first time, saying, I am the man. This brings us to my first takeaway from this story. And you can fill in the blanks if you like to do that. Takeaway number one, Jesus is very aware of systems of exclusion and how they function. And rather than participate, he seems invested in extending greater inclusion. He seems to be trying to work around this system that he gets exactly how it works. Right? He's very aware. But he seems, rather than to participate, to extend greater inclusion. Well, the story doesn't end there, so let's go on. They brought to the Pharisees, they meaning his neighbors, this man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, 
We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man's a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already. You did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Preach, right? To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. There's a lot going on in this. Let's pick it apart a little bit. So the man's been initiated into this Jewish community in a real way. He's bathed in Siloam. And as part of this initiation, he's brought to the spiritual leaders of the community. But that doesn't go so well, does it? The religious leaders have a problem from the first because a couple of their value systems seem to be in conflict, so they're divided. First, we see this guy claims to have experienced a real-life miracle, a miracle which by all rights should bring him into community and cause all who witness to glorify God for this act. But the miracle was done at the hands of Jesus, who at this point is public enemy number one to many of these religious leaders. In fact, the verse before our story at the end of John 8, a group of them actually tried to stone Jesus. They were so angry at him. So in this instance, the healing took place on a Sabbath, a transgression by their code, which would mean whoever did it was in the wrong. Proof of this Jesus being such a scoundrel. Now, this would all be easier to reconcile if they could just cast doubt on the miracle itself. Maybe it wasn't a genuine healing after all. Just fake news, as they say, right? So they summon the parents. The parents are going to know better than anyone this person's history, whether or not the sight he has is miraculous. And when they come, the parents become aware pretty quickly that they're being put in a tricky place. They know better than anyone that their son has never used his eyes before he met Jesus. And thanks to Jesus, now he can. But they also know that to be associated with Jesus is grounds for exclusion in the eyes of these Pharisees. The writer makes it clear their refusal to share the full story has more to do with their fear of being excluded than their lack of knowledge about what happened or even their own faith in the one who made it happen. They're scared of being thrown out, losing their community. So they plead the fifth. They stay quiet. Ask our son. He's an adult. A number of folks in our community have stories like him, have experienced the pain of feeling 
Some folks have even been expelled from faith community. Often in our community, a number of us, because you or someone you loved and were allied with was LGBTQ. I've heard a number of your stories. I've lived my own. As a pastor, convinced that the call God had on my life was to start a fully inclusive church. I experienced this pain in my own way. And what I've seen is that often as this thing plays out, there appear people like the parents here. People who are part of the community in question, who may even tell you privately, I'm with you. I support you. When I was in the process of being expelled from my movement of churches, multiple pastors pulled me aside and said, I agree with you. It's wrong what we're doing to the queer community. It's wrong what they're doing to you. But when I pressed them to say that out loud to the leaders in charge making the call to push back on the system that was willing to exclude me, almost all of them demurred. It was too costly to risk their own inclusion in the group. And I understood their reluctance to speak. But it also hurt, perhaps even more than the rejection of those in power who had a sincere disagreement with me. It's one thing if you genuinely believe differently than me, I can understand why you'd reject me. But to agree with me, to privately support me, and yet to watch from the sidelines while I'm maligned, to choose even to continue to receive benefits from a community that is willing to hurt me, right? That is a unique kind of pain. It's uniquely painful. And I think it's something all of us who would consider ourselves allies in the areas of LGBTQ inclusion, immigration, racial justice, ableism, and so on. We all need to keep this in mind. Our allyship only goes so far if we are ultimately unwilling to put ourselves on the line for others and risk the same exclusion that our friends experience. Well, the parents aren't the only ones who fear exclusion from the system in this story. The man born blind hits a nerve and he clearly exposes this deep fear in the Pharisees themselves as well. When after being unable to discredit the miracle, they turn to discrediting the one who did it, Jesus, they again call upon this man who's been healed. Tell us again how he healed you, they demand. And he responds, why? Do you want to be his followers too? And this is too much. By even implying that these religious leaders might actually follow Jesus, he triggers all of their own fear of exclusion, right? To be in league with Jesus is a clear red line. None of them can even entertain crossing. And so the, the previously divided group, right? They were divided of leaders, becomes united instantaneously. We are disciples of Moses. You are a disciple of this man, right? 
And seeing that this man who was born blind is unwilling to join them in demonizing Jesus, they resort to attacking and discrediting him instead. Well, you were steeped in sin at birth, they say, and expel him from their presence. Once again, he's been excluded from community, but this time he's rejected not for his lack of sight, but for his capacity to see too clearly. What he sees is threatening to the religious leaders. And so rather than incorporate this new information about Jesus that he genuinely healed, that he may be the Messiah, that he's at the very least a real genuine prophet, they have to reject the information and the one who brings it. And this brings me to takeaway number two. Systems of exclusion harm not only those who are excluded, but those within the system as well. As their ability to respond to new circumstances is limited by their own need to remain included. The parents, the Pharisees, none of them can fall down and worship Jesus for what's clearly a demonstrable act that would evoke that response because of their need to be included in this group. You could say it this way. If anyone is unsafe in an anxious system, then no one is truly safe. An anxious system that's willing to exclude means no one is really safe there. Because if they will exclude your sister or your brother, what's it going to take for it to be you? Right? Well, there's one more little episode in this story. Let's see how it ends. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man, which is a term for the Messiah? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment. Another translation for this word is for discernment, for a clear revealing. I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So here once again, we have the language of sin. It's where the story started. It's where it ends. Okay, the Greek word for sin is hamartia. It literally means missing the mark. It's a relational word. Okay, it means you're supposed to go one direction and you're kind of going a little off to the other way. And this story begins with an assumption that it's his, the man or his parents who've sinned. But Jesus ends the story talking about himself, bringing a kind of discernment, a kind of judgment, a kind of clarity to reality that reveals that it's the Pharisees themselves that are the ones who are missing the mark. 
And it's not just the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees that's revealed here. We also see that Jesus is affirming that this man who has been born blind, now encountering Jesus, after they have both been excluded from this community, he has the clearest vision in the story. And it's not just his physical vision, but now it's his spiritual vision as well. As he confesses faith in his healer and worships him. And the one who's not interested in a system of defining who is in and who is out, who is sinned and who is not. This brings us to our last takeaway. Takeaway number three. It's often in the wake of rejection that we actually have the clearest view of Jesus. Because with him, we can recognize the error of systems that separate, shame, and exclude. Seeing God clearly means also recognizing the ways our human systems can miss the mark. I'm not trying to say they're all wrong and just like horrible and we just need to like be done with them. I'm saying it's real that our human systems often miss the mark. And we need Jesus' help. And often we see that most clearly in the wake of experiencing it firsthand. In my season of expulsion, I had a particularly helpful moment in prayer. A sort of mystical experience, you could say. I had this picture in prayer of Jesus walking the road to Calvary. And he was hearing the people on the road calling out, crucify him, crucify him. But as he carried his cross up the hill, he was looking each person lining the road in the eye and recognized every single one of them. These were the folks Jesus had been doing ministry with for years. Each pair of angry eyes had a story for him. I ate lunch with you last week. I fished with you a month ago. I prayed for you. I healed your daughter. And yet here they all were now, calling for him to be killed. Going through my own experience of rejection from the very people I thought were my spiritual family. That vision was comforting. In it, I also thought I heard Jesus say these words. It was in my rejection that I had victory. When I think back to that moment, I sense that some of the wisdom Jesus was naming was that he felt victorious in his battle with exclusionary systems. Rather than submit to the strong social pull of them, he had revealed them for what they were. Communities that ultimately, in their rejection, missed the mark. So where do we go with all this? If we still believe there's some Jesus-centered value to embodying faith in the community of others, how do we do that in ways that don't intentionally or unintentionally create systems of exclusion that miss the mark? 
I want to end with just a couple of suggestions of what this might look like. I don't have all the answers, but I have a couple of thoughts. The first is to remember the metaphor we use here at Haven of centered set. So I think I have this picture again. We talked about it last time we were together. As a blue ocean community, one of the distinctives we've maintained from the beginning is that our primary metaphor is what we call centered set. Essentially, this means we don't define ourselves as a group, a bounded set, right, where you're either in or out because of some set of shared characteristics, in our case, because you've prayed a certain prayer or worship in a certain way or certain aspects of your identity. But rather, we identify ourselves as all pursuing relationship with a shared center. In our case, Jesus. We don't see ourselves as gatekeepers of an exclusionary system. Rather, we see ourselves as fellow travelers trying to make space for a diverse group of people to safely navigate their way toward Jesus. And I believe this kind of orientation is exactly what Jesus himself was trying to prescribe. If we had time to keep reading in John, we would see that what comes directly after this story, Jesus does keep talking to the Pharisees. And to them he describes how he intends to be the leader of a different kind of community. It's a community in which he uses this agrarian metaphor of the world to call himself a shepherd, a good shepherd. And this passage in John 10 is one of the most clear-centered set kind of images I think we have in the Bible. And in it, Jesus describes gathering sheep unto himself who are all defined, not by which sheep pen they come from, not by where they're born, not by their ethnicity, not by their identity, but by the fact that they recognize the shepherd's voice and follow him into the pasture to receive abundant life. Here's a few of the verses he says. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The shepherd is calling his sheep into a community around himself. He says he has come so the sheep may have abundant life, life to the full. He's committed to shepherding a diverse flock, bringing together sheep from all kinds of sheep pens, united by their shared commitment to listen to the shepherd and to be a part of his flock, protected not by the fences around them or by the hired hands who are trying to, you know, bat away any enemies, protected by the shepherd himself who's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. That's their source of security. This is a centered set vision. We don't have to create these boundaries of exclusion and inclusion. We can trust the one that we're all pursuing together. So I think we have to keep that in mind. We have to remember that. Practically, the second idea I have is that as we grow, we regularly need to examine the structures in our community and be willing to adapt them as needed to provide greater accessibility and inclusion. Because centered sets a great theory, but it needs to be lived out in practice, right? And that's where sometimes I think it can be challenging 
So our board's actually chosen to do this recently in regards to how we think about church membership. Okay? We've been re-examining the structures in our community, and we're asking, do we need to adapt them to provide greater accessibility and inclusion? When we incorporated as a church nearly four years ago, we were a handful of people in my living room. None of us had any experience running a church. And so one of the first things you have to do to incorporate as a nonprofit is form a board of directors and adopt some bylaws. So we adopted bylaws based on other Blue Ocean churches that we knew that we had been a part of. And all of these churches, even though they were centered set in ethos, they did have a very bounded set when it came to church membership. They expected that people who became part of the community at some point should formally commit in a deeper way. They should agree to do a number of things, commit to attending regularly, to serving on a Sunday morning team, to giving financially, generously. And people would like take a pledge before the church affirming they were officially committing to do this. And so like the churches we modeled ourselves on, we adopted this model. We codified it in our bylaws along with the complementary expectation that becoming an official member of Haven would be a necessary prerequisite for serving on our board of directors. And there's much about this membership model I want to say I, I appreciate. Because the truth is, for our community to exist and to grow, we do need people to show up on Sundays. And we need people to serve, to set up the chairs, to play in the band, to make the coffee. We need people to give generously of their finances because all of it takes money. We need people to be intentional about their investment in the project. And I believe that those intentional ways of investing are actually an important component of our centered set journeys, moving towards Jesus. They're opportunities to take those steps to orient our life towards Jesus. But in the same way that those congressmen in 1837 weren't aware when they passed their rule of someone to come like Alan Omar, I and the other Haven founders weren't quite aware of the level of spiritual trauma that so many who'd become part of the Haven story would carry with them. Nor were we aware of how those experiences of trauma for some would shape how it feels to formally join an organization in the ways that we were asking. And we've heard feedback from some folks now who've been hurt in other communities. That while they do feel called to serve and to give and to show up and to lead, and many people are doing all those things, something about this bounded set of membership doesn't feel right, doesn't feel good, doesn't feel like who we are trying to be. It feels triggering. So recently our board's begun to name that while we want to still invite everyone to regularly consider how Jesus is calling them to invest in Haven, and that's an important thing to do, we don't want the bounded set of membership or any sense of pressure or obligation around it to be a motivating factor. We've already taken the first step towards a total rethink of our structure in regards to membership. Our board has recently voted to remove the uh, restriction that people in Haven have to be formal church members in order to be asked to serve on the board. That prerequisite has now been removed. And this effectively allows us full freedom to invite anyone we deem sufficiently invested in our community 
and capable of leading to serve on the board. And th from that place, help us shape our structure in a new way going forward, rewrite our bylaws, think about what it means, what does it really mean, um, how do we do a better job embodying centered set in the very structures of our organization. My hope is that in our rethink with the board and with the broader community, our outcome will be a community that demonstrates not just in our ethos, but in our systems and structures that we are fully committed to embodying a faith in which there is no in-group and no out-group. Everyone's a member because everyone fully belongs just as they are. Amen. Of course, community is complicated. Human groups have a way of bringing hurt as well as help, and I can recognize today that many of us are still carrying that hurt. But I believe our hope is ultimately in the Good Shepherd, who himself knows the pain of exclusion, but who is committed to call each of us by name. And as we listen to his voice, bring us into a safe, diverse gathering centered around himself where we can find abundant life. Amen. <laughs>